All right. Why don't you turn to Acts chapter 6, please. The message is entitled, Philip the Evangelist. We're going to use selected scriptures. And the Bible states that the believer is never to despise the day of small things, but to be a faithful steward in the least of things. You as a parent do the same thing, hopefully, to your children. You raise them that they be disciplined, to take care of their room, to clean the bathroom, to do this, to do that. Things that seem to be insignificant, they're boring, they don't want to do them, but you force them so they learn that they have to work, earn their keep, and be faithful and be part of the family. It's no different in the church, ladies and gentlemen. This is a perfect picture of Philip who serves in the most menial tasks, as we'll see, as a faithful servant in the kingdom of God. The man Philip is portrayed for us in three different settings as God raises him up for the ministry in the kingdom of God. And we want to use three groups of scripture. First, we want to look at the... The proving of Philip, which is found in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Then we're going to move on to the preaching gift of Philip in chapter 8, verse 1 through 25. And then we'll finish up with the promotion of Philip in Acts 8, 26 through 40. We begin here with the proving of Philip. The text is found again in Acts 6, 1 through 7. And because of the amount of material... I won't read them all, but we'll move through them and you'll be able to follow through verse by verse as we go here. But notice here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, the proving of Philip. The problem of growth was the occasion here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. The church was growing at an alarming rate and disciples were being multiplied. 3,000, as you know, at Pentecost were added in chapter 241. 5,000 at the temple in chapter 4, verse 4. And multitudes of men and women in chapter 5, verse 14. Once Pentecost came, they were preaching the gospel. God began to add to the church to do a work that no man can do. We must always remember that what you see happening, if the word of God is being taught and preached, then God will save people. God will direct people. It will, God will do it in different ways. Some people have a great evangelistic uh, ministry that's a heart of it. Uh, and you see a lot of evangelism. And those that are pastor teacher, God does it a different way. I am not an evangelist, but I do the work of evangelism. We do evangelism, and God has always added and saved people through the church. He takes care of this. Now notice in verse 1 still, there arose a complaint of the Hellenist Jews against the Hebrews regarding the daily distribution. Hey, welcome to the church. It's, you see, the church would be perfect if it wasn't for people. You understand? Sometimes people say, well, you know what? We've we got to go back to the first century church. Really? It was messed up just like we are. There is no perfect church. And if you think you found the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. These were two classes of Jews, as you know. The Hebrews were natives of Israel who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, embracing all of the Hebrew culture. And, of course, they exalted themselves because they were the purest, right? Then the Hellenists were Jews born outside of Israel in Roman provinces, and they spoke Greek. Greek was the language of the day. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman in Galatians 4, 4. When the roads were free, there was peace all over the world and one language, and God sent the gospel out right on time. Now, notice the complaint was manifested by their murmuring, the word complaint there, uh, means to mutter or grumble in a low tone. If you're a parent, you know exactly what he's talking about here. Uh, with your children, what? No, 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 no. It's a displeasure, a complaint, privately, till they are heard. What's going on here is jealousy and envy and everything else, right? Comparing one against another. It's, it's in our DNA. It's in our sin nature. Uh, if we don't walk in the Spirit, then we do walk in the flesh. And this type of word... It sounds like what is being described is called anomatopoeic. In other words, it's like a, the, 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 the word gong. It, it, it sounds like what it sounds like when you, you hear it. Or coo. And it's, that's the word that is you hear when you hear murmuring. It's gumusmos. Gumusmo. You can't, it sounds like it. 
Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. This is not difficult. It's impossible. Unless you walk in the Spirit. Unless you deny yourself. We are little girls. We cry. We murmur. We do all kinds of stuff. That's our flesh, ladies and gentlemen. You know, flying in the plane, what you hear now, wherever you go, is the, the, uh, be, if we could only be more human and this and that, humanism, and they say, the, if we could live by the golden rule, this and that, they're taking a, a, a Judeo-Christian principle, the golden rule, and applying it to humanism. Humanism is not good. Humans aren't good. They're bad. That's why we have wars. That's why we have divorce. That's why we steal. That's why we do all the things we do. We're good for nothing. Unless we walk with God, it's just not going to happen. Two collections were made every Friday morning, one at the market and the other one at homes. They met temporary and permanent needs comprised of 14 meals a week, two per week. Chapter 435 gives an example of that. So the church was, as you know, if you read the book of Acts, you know that uh, they were there to meet the needs and they even tried to practice uh, true communism. In other words, to make everything equal and they sold properties and everything else. And so many people say, well, that's what the church should be doing today. No, that was a mistake. And it shows that it was a mistake. Well intended, but pretty soon the church of Jerusalem was broke. And Paul took an offering from all the Gentiles to help them out. If you have money, then you let God tell you what to do with that money. Any pastor that tells you to give it all to the church, get up and walk out. He's a quack. You be faithful to God to give to God what you believe he, he deserves. And he really, everything is his, as you know. Okay? So what we give them is nothing. So let's not even go there. When I used to drink and party and do everything else, I, when I became a Christian, the first weekend I've told you, I, I, I became wealthy. I, I had more money left because I, I wasted 20 to 30, 40% of my stuff with drinking and everything else. And yet, as the church helped in that sincere intent, it was wrong. It's much better for you to take care of yourself and to make investments of yourself so that you can take care of yourself and help others if you can. You understand? You give everything away, then somebody's got to take care of you, right? It's just simple. Sincere. Well intended. But that's not what God intended. Now, there were two funds called a cooper, meaning basket, and the other one taboo, which meaning tray, for the emergencies. And again, uh, James 2, 4 speaks about uh, helping the poor and stuff like that. Notice in verse 2 to 4, the proper oversight um, demonstrated wisdom here. Um, in verse 2, the 12 directed themselves to the multitude of disciples here. The 12 were appointed by Jesus, you know, and Matthias took the place of Judas and uh, were acknowledged as the twelve apostles, the foundation and of the household of God that was built upon, as Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and the prophets, the foundation of the church. The disciples were those who had accepted Jesus and became learners and pupils of Jesus and his word, even as Jesus said in John 15.7, to abide in him. Apart from him, we could do nothing. The branches. The twelve denounced any thought notice of abandoning the word to serve tables in verse 2 at the end there. Now, at first, it seems that they might think they're high and mighty. But the word desirable there means fit or agreeable, what is appropriate or proper. It was not pride or position that kept the apostle from serving, but obedience to their call to make disciples, to teach the word of God. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Ephesians 4. Priorities. When we first started ministry, we did everything. Whatever we did, first myself alone, then Mario came along, and, 
And then as the ministry has grown, we disperse different things and we allow God to use other people. Not because we think we're better than anybody else. Anybody around here, all of us have worked in the world. We have to um, sweep. We have to do it. It doesn't make any difference to us. We, we're just like you guys. No big, big deal. Okay, but the priorities is recognizing the gifts and the way the people God puts people and how God has raised many of you up to work in ministry and to do the work of ministry. And God has used you guys tremendously. There's a prison ministry goes on every Sunday and the guys are out there ministering to the guys in prison, doing an incredible job. There's other things that are going on. Some things go on I don't even know about. They're going on. God takes care of it. They're obedient. You guys are obedient to, to follow the Lord. And that's what's important. Now. The word, um, again, desirable is the appropriate thing. And so it wasn't pride, but the 12 here um, delegated the serving of tables to those who were qualified. So you don't just dump things on people. You're looking for the people that God is raising up, people who are sincere, people who are proven. And you delegate those things, not just to somebody who can fill a hole. The word serve there, diakonia, as you know, means to attend or to wait upon. We get our word deacon from it. Uh, the men that greet you when you get out of your car, when you're walking in, the people, guys that are around here, ushering in that. Um, they were to seek out men um, among themselves, seven here in particular. And uh, they were to be men of good reputation, notice, character. They were to be men full of the Holy Spirit. So there are qualifications not like the ones that we would have in the world but but we see that there is a standard for whatever a person is called to they were to be men of wisdom and this is what you want you know many of us were in the world and we were knuckleheads and everything else and god has turned us around and as we depend on the word of god god has made us totally different something we could have never even thought we could be or, or you stop and think how far God has brought you and where would you have been without the Lord and where you are now in the Lord. And it's just, you know, especially in this Thanksgiving, I hope that as you reflect, reflected upon that and as you sat home with your friends and your loved ones and, and how much God has blessed you and, and the peace you have and the friendships you have and, and the, the understanding you have about the world, the, the lostness, the, the ability of God to save, and, and all the chaos that goes in the world, but God's still on the throne. I mean, you have information that the FBI wish they had. I mean, you are so blessed, and so am I, in many, many different ways. Now, the 12 declare their commitment to their responsibility in verse 4 they were given themselves continually to prayer first notice the order secondly continue to minister the word of god prayer in the word of god you see though we're focusing on evangelism the purpose of the church is never to evangelize the world the purpose of the church is to perfect to teach to educate the saints ephesians 4 and then the privilege is to go evangelize. Now I know the word of God. I can answer people's questions. I can evangelize. You understand? That's important. Look at 5 through 8. The pleasing results um, benefited the church. In verse 5 and 6, the multitude of disciples were in agreement with the council of the twelve being pleasing and acceptable. In verse 5, they chose seven men who um, who appeared to be Hellenists by name. Now, that's smart, huh? Who's complaining? The Hellenists. <laughs> what do you do? You choose Hellenists. <laughs> wow. So obvious, huh? Nothing is known about these men except for Stephen, Philip, and Nicholas. Stephen was full of faith, as we'll see in verse 9, full of the Holy Spirit. He'll evangelize the synagogue of the freedmen, which will result in his being stoned to death. Um, Philip became an evangelist, and called to be an evangelist, we'll see in chapter 8, verse 5, and 21.8. And his name means lover of horses. So he's not a Jew. He's, he's, you know, he's, a lot of these guys, they were, uh, they were straddling the fence. They were influenced so much by the Greek culture that the Romans accepted and embraced. Nicholas was a proselyte from Antioch who had been identified with the sect of the Nicolaitans, which we've studied that in Revelation 2.6, uh, with idolatry and everything else, wanting to lord over people. 
and that God hates. It's believed that he's affiliated because of that. And notice they brought the seven before the apostles for official recognition and, and, and transferring authority by prayer in the laying of hands in verse 6. So there's a, there's a consensus of, of those who are in authority who see God's hand upon a certain person or something and, and come alongside say, hey, listen, you like, we'd like you to start coming to class for the leadership or would you take this ministry, this and that. And, and there's an agreement and, and, and the body benefits from it. The church continued to grow in verse 7. It tells us the word of God spread because they were being taught and the needs were being met through delegation. Delegation. As a parent, you delegate to your children as they grow older. As a father, you delegate. As a, as a boss at work, you delegate. If you try to do everything yourself, you can't do it. You strangle the work. Um, you stifle it. Um, the priest in great numbers were obedient to the faith. and number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So God, again, the word going out and people... Turn around. Now remember, the majority of these people are Jewish that are coming into the church. But now we're seeing now Gentiles also. You know, the reason they have test pilots is not to endanger their lives, but to make sure the people who get into the planes can be out of danger. And so with the testing of men in ministry, it's to people who have been proven and able to demonstrate for the protection and safety of those who are going to be serving. That's what it's about. The way men are proven in the church is as they are available for the needs of the church after the example of Jesus who came to serve and not to be served, as Matthew twenty four twenty eight says. He is our ultimate example. The men in the oversight of the church must use the biblical standard given for men to be used, not laying hands too soon on any person or the church will be hindered and sometimes great sin can result in that. First Timothy 3, First um, Timothy 5.22 and also Titus 1 gives you the requirements for elders and deacons and bishops so on and so forth. And there's wisdom in that. So you allow for people to be raised up by God, to be proven by God, and you, you delegate slowly a step at a time so you have maturity in the church, you have safety in the church, you have, you know, you have a different uh, gauntlets of protection. It's important. Never dictatorial, never um, uh, with a heavy hand, but only in as far as the Scriptures allow us to submit to one another in the love and the fear of God. And that's the mutual submission. Now, the men who are proven are so by the efficiency and effect of their service by God's hand through them for the body of Jesus Christ. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus that we might walk in them, Ephesians 2.10 says. Now, some of you have been here for as long as the church has been. And you've served the Lord, and you're, you're, you're a father, you're a mother, you're an adult. You, when you come here, you, you're aware of things that go on. You understand how the protocol of the church, you understand what goes on. And then there's others who are uh, maybe 10 years younger than you, and then uh, 20 years younger, and, and so on and so forth. And you have a, a balance of family. You have mother, father, grandfather, grandmother, great-grandmother, uncles, cousins, and it balances out, you know, and they, they, everybody's there and check out of love. And when the mom doesn't say, hey, watch it, the uncle say, what's the matter with you? Get right. You know, and there's a check and everything, and, and everything grows safe and, out, and love. That's what the church is about. Not about someone leading everybody and everybody applauding him or anything else. That's not what the church is about, ladies and gentlemen. We have made it into that, sadly, but that's not what the church is about. And so the proving of Philip was for service. Service. It's a high privilege to serve the Lord, ladies and gentlemen. The, you know, everything we do, and this again, priorities. When you're a mom and dad, you got young kids, you're not going to be able to be involved as much, but you should be involved. You always should be involved. How much and how far depends on where you are in your level of parenthood and everything else. But we're always involved. Did your right hand ever say, well, I can't help you right now, I got to wait till later on? 
There's priorities. You're always involved one way or the other. Your kids. I love my grandkids. They, they, they serve. You know what I mean? My kids. Whatever it is, you, all of us should serve. And the Lord can minister to every one of us. Now from this, we go to the preaching gift of Philip. We go to Acts chapter 8. And this is a little longer one from verse 1 to 25, but we'll take it in sections. Um, notice in verse 1 through 8, Philip was an evangelist of the gospel that we noted. And Philip and others were pressed out to preach the gospel of God under severe persecution under the hand of Paul. Well, called Saul at that time, verse 1 through 3. Um, the word con, uh, consenting in verse 1 refers to the continuous action expressed seeing his pleasure in the death of Stephen. That is looking back. Chapter 7, verse 58. Paul was standing there when they stoned Stephen to death, giving his approval. Paul used to kill Christians. Wow. The word havoc there means to cause ruin, dishonor, and to treat shamefully. There's nothing more tyrannical, more cruel than a religious zealot. A religious seller will kill you. A Christian will die for you. Do we understand the difference? All right? When you are religious and somebody offends you, you will kill them. As a Christian, you pray for them. You minister the gospel to them. There's a great difference. The method of Saul... We're ruthless, entering every house, it says there, dragging men and women off, committing them to prison. Bad dude. In verse 4 and 5, Philip was used to preach to Samaria. In verse 4, those scattered when preaching everywhere. The word preaching, evangelizo, uh, means glad tithing. We get our word evangelized from it. Philip preached that Jesus was Christ. Note that carefully. Verse 5. The long-awaited Messiah. The word preached there, Caruso, as you know, is a, a herald to commission to proclaim whatever the state hired him to do. He was not responsible for the results, only the proclamation. He was not responsible for the people's response, but just to be faithful to declare what he was told to declare. You and I are not responsible for people's response. We are there just to proclaim the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to deal with their hearts, convict them, and bring them into the kingdom. I love it. The Samaritans, as you know, were cross-populated, mixed marriages, the Assyrian captivity of 722, and they would take people from different sections and cross-populate them like Pasadena, take Pasadena and put them over in, in maybe San Dimas and San Dimas over in San Diego and San Diego and they would cross-populate to, to depress them so they wouldn't be able to connect with family and they would be less likely to rebel and pretty soon they would be just deluded in terms of family and culture and they would marry others and they would just disappear. It's a very effective way. Herod built a city, called it... Uh, Sebastes, the Latin equivalent of Augustus. Notice in verse 6 through 8, the response of the people to the preaching of Philip was a wholehearted welcome. The multitude in one accord, uh, in verse 6, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles. Notice what comes first, the hearing, the word of God. Miracles followed the word. Not the reverse, like they used to teach with uh, um, John Wimber, the late John Wimber of the Vineyard Movement. They, they try to teach evangelism as, 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 as miracles as a form of evangelism, and they taught a whole course up here in Fuller Seminary. Um, wrong, absolutely wrong. Um, no one's ever been saved by a miracle. You're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself, by the hearing the Word of God. Because if you see a miracle, you can say, well, if that was really a miracle, do me another one. Okay, miracles don't save people. The Word of God does. Now, notice the unclean spirits cried out with a loud voice, crying out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame and healed. In verse 7, the outcome was great joy in the city. In verse 8, joy is the first manifestation of God's agape love in Galatians 5.22. 
the fruit of the Spirit. Joy from the Lord. The joy of the Lord from the Lord is strength, as you know, in Nehemiah 8.10. And so God is working in a way that is way beyond men's abilities or men's talents. All we can do is yield to be the instruments of God to see God work in a marvelous way. And we want to stay away from any uh, tainting or, or, or corrupting what God does alone. We want to make sure that He's the one that gets the glory. Now, when you get to verse 9 through 13, notice Philip preached the message of the gospel indiscriminately. There was the sorcerer of, of Samaria here named Simon in the crowd in verse 9. And he previously practiced sorcery or magic in the city, astonishing and claiming to be someone great. And when people are ignorant, they don't have the word of God and people talk about prophetic things and they can see the future and tarot cards and all this stuff. People get taken in by people like that. But when you're a Christian, you understand that God's the only one that knows the future. And everybody else tells you they know it. They're dealing with demons and different things. Some are fakes, but sometimes they're dealing with demons. The word astonishment appears twice translated bewitched in the old King James. And the word is here in verse 9 and verse 11. The word means to throw out of position or mind by terror into wonderment. You can't make sense of it. Um, it, it is really the aspect of it. Um, notice verse 10 and 11. The people were spellbound by Simon here. In verse 10, the people gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And so people move into these occultic areas because the occult is real. The power of Satan is real. The whole New Age movement is occultic. Um, with the invasion of the British invasion of rock and drugs and sex and everything else, man, our nation became overcome with all the occult in many different ways. The Word of God would set them free. At this point, from that, how many people God just uh, set free through the preaching of the gospel through the 60s and 70s as the Jesus movement moved along by the grace of God using Pastor Chuck in the Calvary Chapels and many other movements like that. Now, notice in verse 11, the people had heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorcery uh, for a long time. Um, they could not explain how it was possible. How could they oppose him? In 12 and 13, the people, as well as Simon, believed the gospel. In 12, the people believed Philip preaching. I mean, Paul says, you know, through the preaching uh, of foolishness, uh, of the, the foolishness of preaching, God has chosen to save people. Not the preaching of foolishness, but that through preaching, God would use that so simple to make his word alive in the heart of people and save them. With all the high tech that we have, all the information, all the internet, everything else, less people know about Jesus Christ today than 30 years ago. More people know about Pepsi Cola and Coca Cola. So much for our ingenuity. Wow. The things of the kingdom of God, its present power. And soon would be arriving in full force, already in part. The kingdom is present and yet to come. Notice the name of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the God-man, the Messiah of God, the one who had been prophesied had arrived. This is what's being preached. Today there's a great movement to try to substitute Jesus and make it all-inclusive. Notice that I opened up with this passage that there was no discrimination in the preaching. Do you know what the focus of so many churches are today? They try to focus uh, on, on all the, the minority groups and all the different cultures so they can have their little balance in the church and all that. And so they, 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 they try to cater to the culture and everything else. Jesus says, preach the gospel. If Mexicans come in, if Armenians come in, if white people come in, if black people come in, just feed them. 
I'm not here saying, okay, we got to have at least a hundred blacks here and at least a hundred whites. And that is so carnal. It is such an offensive thing to the gospel and kingdom of God, ladies and gentlemen. This is the effort of so many churches today here in Pasadena and everywhere else. It's one of their objectives. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. So offensive to God. They believed in faith. The believers were baptized. Look at verse 13. The sorcerer Simon believed Philip as well. As he preached. He believed in faith. The same word is used as the people in the previous verse. They made confession. They were baptized in water publicly. And he was baptized also and continued with Philip and was amazed at the miracles and signs which were done by him in verse 13. Then in 14 through 25, Philip preaching, uh, preaches to the Samaritan that, that this took place. It reached Jerusalem. The word got back to Jerusalem. In 14 through 17, the receiving of God's word was confirmed by those of Jerusalem, the apostles sent Peter and John down to Samaria to verify the work to be genuine. And this is wisdom. Many people say, well, you know, God started a church. I said, okay, you go check it out. That ain't church. You want to confirm. You don't want to doubt. You don't want to say, well, those guys. But you want to make sure to confirm by the word of God. In 15 through 17, the apostles prayed and they, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And they laid hands on them. Notice that. The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon them. This being the third preposition here, upon the word at P. If you were with us and you've gone through the New Believers class, you understand the threefold prepositions of the Holy Spirit. That's associated with the baptism. The Spirit came upon. The Spirit is in us, was with us, in us, and now upon us for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for empowerment. Acts 1.8. Very important. Yet a person has the Holy Spirit when they're born again. But it doesn't mean that you are baptized with the Spirit, as we've talked about many times. We don't want to get sidetracked. It can happen at the same time. It doesn't have to be. And there's different orders. Sometimes you're born again and water baptized, then baptized in the Spirit. And the main thing is that you're first born again. And the other things can happen subsequently to that. And the book of Acts shows that very clearly um, throughout it. Now, this experience can take place, as I said, at the same time or subsequent, okay? And as we go through the book back, sometimes people were water baptized first, that's here. But now they, now they send the, Peter and John, and now they're water baptized. Now they're baptizing the Spirit. Two different baptisms, right? So they were born again. They were baptized. Now they're baptizing the Spirit. At other times, we see in the book of Acts, they're born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, then they're water baptized. In Acts 19, the disciples at Ephesus. But the main thing is, the first thing that has to be first is born again. Very important. They laid hands on them. The act of faith, that Jesus would be the baptizer. They don't baptize in the Spirit. We baptize you in water, we'll do that tonight. But Holy Spirit... Jesus gives. He is the baptizer. He told John the Baptist, said in Matthew 3.11, that I baptize you in water, the one among you who I'm not, whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to loosen, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's a baptizer. Now notice in verse 18 to 23, the receiving of the Holy Spirit by the laying of hands reveals Simon's heart here. Simon, seeing the people in verse 18 and 19 receive the Holy Spirit through the laying out of the hands, offered them money. The word simony comes from the word buying and selling of ecclesiastical office and authority from the Catholic Church of Popes. Simony. <laughs> you buy the office. Okay? That's where it comes from. Now, in verse 20 through 23, Peter rebukes Simon immediately for believing he could purchase the Holy Spirit. There are always people that want to merchandise the church, who want to um, set themselves up to get in there and rule, whatever it may be. It's, it's the natural fallen 
nature of man. The phrase, your money perishes, literally means your money be with you for destruction. Simon's heart was not right with in the sight of God, as verse 21 tells us. The message to Simon was repentance from his wickedness and pray to God that perhaps the thoughts of his heart be forgiven him in verse 22. So as long as there is conviction, as long as there is time, God may, God will forgive the repentance. That is always the option. That's always the goal. God is merciful. God is gracious. And as long as the Spirit is dealing with us, then we can turn to Him. Repentance means a change of mind with Turn around 180 degrees. You're walking this way, you turn around the other way. This is the work of the Spirit of God in our heart as we're open to Him. The reason was that Simon was poisoned by bitterness and abound in iniquity, verse 23 tells us. This is the stuff that we need to deal with the Lord and give to the Lord. He points things out. We agree with Him. Amos 3 3. Can two walk together and said they be agreed? And you hand it to him and you leave it at his feet and you trust him and you depend upon him. Verse 24 and 25, the receiving of, um, of Peter's rebuke was a stern warning here. In 24, Simon asked Peter to pray for him that none of these things which he had spoken would come upon him. The apostles, as swiftly as they arrived to Samaria, then left in verse 25. After having testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, it says in 25 there. They also preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans, being open to the work of God without respect to persons, the rest of 25. And so again, they're, they're being directed and guided. They're doing what God is telling them to do. And they're not partaking of any glory they're rejoicing what God is doing. They're confirming that it's a work of God. And then they get done with that and they go do whatever God has for them. Just like many of you have done through the years. Like you're doing now. Like I've done. And God does the work. A black church in Kansas City has as its slogan, Wake up, sing up, preach up, pray up, pay up, but never give up or let up or back up, or shut up until the cause of Christ in His church and in the world is built up. Pressing forward. Not looking back. There's death, trash, junk back there. That's all there is. The gift of evangelism is one of the most amazing gifts and needed for the church yet one of the most dangerous ones because of the attention it brings upon the individual. That pretty soon the individual becomes um, praised and glorified and then he starts believing the press. We've seen many examples through history of this. And pretty soon it's a, it's a machine, it's a business. You have to be careful. Everything starts well. Everybody does. It's how we finish that's important. One must think soberly, knowing that the gifts that I possess are given to me and I cannot take any credit for. First Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you have not received and you have received it? Why are you boasting? We can't boast about anything, ladies and gentlemen. Our flesh likes to. But our new nature needs to check that and say that that goes down. That's not going to go. One must refuse the glory and point to Jesus always. Even as Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, 8 through 18, they, they were being praised. These are the gods, you know, and Jupiter and, you know, and, 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 and they tore their clothes. We're men like you. They were at their greatest danger there. People want to praise you. People want to tell you how good you are. You know who you are. And you are what you are by the grace of God if anything good comes from it. All the rest of the bad stuff, that's all mine. Everything good, God gets the credit. And I have to keep that in mind. Not being phony, not being, you know, hypocritical, but understanding it. Very, very, very clear.
The test of time will reveal if the messenger begins to respect people in his preaching. Sometimes men are powerfully used by God and then they become respect or a person. They don't want to offend certain people, so then they keep from preaching certain things. They don't want to talk about sin from the pulpit. They don't want to talk about homosexuality. They don't want to talk about creation and destruction and all this stuff because it might offend somebody. You know, I have to tell you the truth. Some people need to be offended. Um, but I don't go out of my way to offend them. I just, if I just teach the word, it'll, it'll happen automatically. You know what I mean? At times I'm teaching you and I'm preaching that and people get up and walk out. I know what's going on. You know, sticks being thrown by the Holy Spirit and, and it hits somebody. And they just don't like it, right? It doesn't line up with their worldly view. How could he say that? Hear me again. I'll say it again. <laughs> you know? Because it's the Word of God. It's not that we think we're better. It's not that I think I, you know, I have some superior authority. It's, it's the Word of God. We can't water it down, and we should always declare it with a broken heart, never with smugness that we're happy that people perish. Never. Absolutely never. And so, um, uh, Peter was um, pressured to bend the knee. Remember in Galatians two eleven through 21, where some of the Jews came from Jerusalem, and he was over here eating pork chops with the Gentiles, and all of a sudden he tiptoed to the kosher table, and Paul got in his face and rebuked him. And so, so terrible it was that he stumbled Barnabas. Wow. Aren't you glad that's in there? Because you can identify with that. They're not perfect men. But he repented. He got squared away. The danger is that it stifles the life of the Spirit to reveal the power of the gospel that changed lives on every level when we compromise. We take away from the power of the gospel. We minimize it. The message will be embraced by many. Some will be sincere while others will be insincere. That's God's department. The word of God will expose our heart. Hebrews uh, 4 uh, 12, the word of God is sharpened to edge of sword, piercing the son of the soul and the spirit, a discerner of the intent of the heart. It just lays things bare. But we're the same manner is used by God every time. The gospel is preached, conviction comes through illumination, and people decide to be saved or to be lost by their agreement with God or disagreement with God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. My grace through faith, that not of ourself. It's a gift of God. And so the preaching gift of Philip was evangelism. The third aspect is the promotion of Philip. We find this in chapter 8 of Acts, in verse 26 through 40. And uh, from 26 to 28, Philip was sent out by God to reach out to the Ethiopian eunuch. You're familiar with this. Um, Philip was told by the angel in verse 26 um, to leave Samaria and to go to Gaza, a desert. The distance is about 60 miles southwest of Jerusalem and close to the border of Egypt, about 95 miles uh, from Samaria. And notice in verse 27, Philip obeyed, he arose and he went, and he did not allow the success of Samaria to hinder his obedience to go somewhere else when God called him. This is great, great stuff. The danger is in getting caught up in the success wanting to receive the glory or, or, or not leave it. In other words, he didn't think of himself so important that, that God couldn't take him away from there and things wouldn't continue. When I, was, uh, when I got hit on my Harley in 201, February 2nd at 7.30 in the morning on Groundhog's Day, <laughs> the pulpit was taken over by the elders here. For four and a half months, the church flourished. I am your pastor. I am so thankful to you for allowing me to be your pastor. But I'm replaceable. I'm not that important. God has put me here, and I thank God for that. But God can fill this pulpit with the godly men that serve under us. God is in control. And so here he doesn't think himself so big, and, and he goes. 
And in verse 27, there in the middle to 28, Philip saw a man of Ethiopia. He was a eunuch, one to oversee the uh, uh, bedchambers of the harem of the women that belonged to the king. And he was a man of great authority, it says in 27, under Candace, the queen mother of Ethiopia. So he came with great wealth and everything. He, he stuck out like a sore thumb. And he was in charge of all her treasury, it says. And he had come to worship in Jerusalem to worship and was returning now as a proselyte of the gate or God fear. We're not sure which one because he's a proselyte. Okay, and there were the two type of proselytes. But in 28, he was sitting on his chariot and he was reading Isaiah, the prophet. Now, remember, they don't have a New Testament. All they have is Old Testament scrolls. Okay. So, of course, he's, he's in Isaiah there. Isaiah was gospel when called by God to call the people of God to repentance from their sin, as you know, because they weren't trusting God. Um, they were trusting their alliance to Egypt and their idols. And so Isaiah is calling them to repentance. Now, in verse 29 35, Philip was used by the Spirit of God to preach Christ to the Ethiopian. He just got through a Samaria. He just saw God do some work. God calls him over here. He goes. He didn't say, well, Lord, I mean, you know, look at all the people here. Who's out in the desert? This can't be God. Only horny toes and lizards out there. But God knew there was a man out there. The Ethiopian, right? He's the one that directs and guides us. Philip was led and guided to the Ethiopian 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. And Philip ran to him in 30 and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. Philip questioned him and said, Do you understand what you are reading and confess his need of help? He said, How can I unless someone guide me seeing his need? This is great stuff. When God is dealing with your heart and you acknowledge, I, I can't figure this out. You demonstrate your own ineptness and inability to be able to handle this stuff. Anything that God that, that deals with God. And he asked Philip to come up and to sit with him. And in 32 and 33, Philip heard the Ethiopian reading from Isaiah regarding the suffering servant. You remember we went through that when we went through Isaiah. The passage is found in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verse 7 and 8. The translation he read from was the Septuagint version, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings by the 200 uh, scholars during the Maccabean period, 200 or so. The first verse depicted the loving substitution in place of man's death without complaint or defense. He says, the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Second verse depicted the understanding the undeserved punishment for man to be declared in his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. Verse 33. It's focusing on the one who died for him. The one who came from heaven to earth in response to Isaiah. Oh, oh God will rent the heavens and come down. As God will say, 700 years I'll be there. I'll answer your prayer. In 34 and 35, Philip saw the Ethiopian's openness. The Ethiopian was teachable and answered Philip, I ask you of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scriptures preached Jesus to him. Wow. Jesus did the same thing to the two men on the road of the Maya's, as you know, in Luke 24, 27. He began to preach Jesus. Not Krishna, not Allah, not Buddha. Not anybody else but Jesus Christ. The one who was prophesied of coming and dying for the sins of the world. In verse 36 through 40, Philip offers salvation to the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the ultimate goal. We, 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 it's great to present Christ and to preach Christ, 
But never leave, let anybody walk away without saying, Would you like to accept Christ? Would you like to repent from your sins? You don't know that's the last time that person will have an opportunity. That they say, No, who cares? People are embarrassed. Oh, I boom. It's not, you're not saving them. And if he says no, then you can walk away praying for them. Because the word of God has been sown. So he offers salvation to the Ethiopian eunuch, 36 through 40. In 36 to 37, Philip asked the Ethiopian to baptize him. He asked as they were going down the road, they came to some water and the Ethiopian says, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then notice the responses from the Ethiopian eunuch. He's been hearing the word of God. He was already baptized as a proselyte. But now, as a Christian, accepting Jesus Christ as Messiah, Philip told him the only thing that would hinder him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you don't believe with all your heart, I will not baptize you. Because you'd be just a wet sinner. Right? Water doesn't cleanse you from any sin, Peter tells us. The only thing that would hinder the Ethiopian is rejecting the gospel, the lack of faith in the gospel. The Ethiopian said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He acknowledged the need of confessing Christ as Messiah, to be the Son of God. This is what the gospel declares. In 38 and 39, the Ethiopian then was baptized by Philip. Notice the order. Preaching, confession, repentance, baptism. Philip and the Ethiopian went down to the water, and Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip then was caught up in 39, away by the Spirit, when they both came up out of the water. Interesting, the word uh, caught up there is the word harpazo, the very same word for the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. The word harpazo means suddenly, violently, snatched away, and every time it appears in the Scripture... It, it, it communicates a relocation, a transportation of one location to another. From here to Azotus, the church will be raptured from the earth to heaven. Every time it appears, the seed was sown on the wayside and the birds came and harpazoed, grabbed it and took it to the air. And if you look at every instance, I think about 13 of them, it's exactly the same. Now notice the Ethiopian did not see Philip anymore. He went his way, rejoicing over the forgiveness of his sins. As He had come to worship. He was leaving empty. Because Messiah had come now. Now he's walking back with the message of the gospel. And I guarantee you this man did not be a silent witness. He ministered the gospel. In verse 40, Philip continued to be used by God as an evangelist. Notice that he was found in Azotus after he was raptured away. He passed through the preaching in all the cities till he came to Samaria, we're told. He came, became known as Philip the evangelist and Paul the apostle spent some time in his house on his return from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem where um, Agabus warned him of his imprisonment in Acts 21.8. Philip is the only one bearing the title in the New Testament of an evangelist. He wasn't the only one, but he's the only one that's called an evangelist. Okay? It's interesting. Don't be like the worker who was um, never promoted. He was a hardworking, conscientious man but had not received the promotion in 10 years, asked if he had any explanation for the failure of advancement. He replied, quote, Many years ago I had an, an argument with my superior. I won. Some people are always arguing with God about how they deserve so much more, how they need to be known and discovered. And they find that they're not promoted. You know, 
Just be exactly who God has called you to be, ladies and gentlemen, and you will be a blessing to your family, to those around you, to the church of Jesus Christ. We're not here to impress one another. <laughs> we really aren't. As if we could, <laughs> first of all. If you want to be like Philip, then begin, as he did, waiting on tables in Acts 6, serving medial tasks, serving the capacity of the Holy Spirit, serving faithfully, preaching to the least, to those that God brings, Samaritans, Ethiopians, whatever it may be. If you're like Philip, then God knows that you will be obedient to leave the crowds and to go wherever he leads you. You will not want to be just where, quote, quote, the biggies are, where certain people are. You want to be exactly where God wants you to be. And you're obedient to that. That's the beauty of the church. The greatest work is not to be determined by the size or the popularity, but by the directed service of God in your life. The trap is to be comfortable. That's dangerous. Be in the service. Be serving. Being used of God. If you follow in the steps of Philip, then you will be content in whatever you do for God. But never be complacent if God wants to press you forward. Contentment is good. That's what the world lacks. Complacency is not good. Contentment means I'm glad and I thank God for what he's given me and I don't deserve it. But I'm ready to be and to do whatever else he wants. Complacency means, eh, I'm okay, doesn't that is false humility. We get lazy. We don't want to be used. And so we want to be content but never complacent. Very important. Paul puts it this way, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold on that for which Christ has also laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. One thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to the things that are ahead. I press through the goal to the price of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Remember, one thing is important. Forgetting the things that are behind. You can't go forward looking backwards. I've told you many times, get in your car, try to get home looking backwards. When you leave the service, you won't get out of the parking lot. Okay? You'll crash. Too many people try to run the race of Christ going forward looking backwards. Oh, if I only all the... Be quiet. Look forward. He has buried your sins in the deepest ocean, made a new creation out of you. He loves you. He's going to use you. And you are very specific in the body of Christ. Your gifts, your calling, what he wants you to do. Whether it be here or wherever God would take you. You belong to him. You do not belong to me or anybody else. You belong to Jesus Christ. Having a consecrated ear to hear the voice of God like the high priest. Having a consecrated thumb to do the service of God. Having a consecrated toe to walk in the ways of God. They would put blood on all three. And God will use you tremendously. So the promotion of Philip was God's doing. Here you have Philip. He's portrayed for us through these three different settings in the scripture. The moving, the proving of Philip was for service. The preaching gift of Philip was evangelism. And the promotion of Philip was God's doing. No one else. And so may God minister to us as we come to the close of this year. One more month. It's gone. If he tarries, we got a whole new year coming. Pray for us. Pray that God use us. Pray that God bring people. Pray that the gospel have free course. Pray that we are courageous in Christ, whatever he has for us, and that we obey him in every way. And that we are never get satisfied, <laughs> complacent, content absolutely and grateful, but never complacent. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for your person here, Lord, and just your grace over our life. Lord, uh, you're so good to us. I pray even now for those that are listening over the Internet, Lord, that you watch over them, you deal with their heart. And Father, if there's anyone here present or over the Internet that doesn't know you, 
that they will call on your name. If you're out there and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Right where you sit, if you believe what I've been sharing, then you can call on Him right now and He'll save you. It's called a prayer of repentance. This is a simple prayer for you to repent and ask Him to forgive you and to save you. And if you mean it, even as the Samaritans did, that we've seen, He will save you right now. This is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.